ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Human beings are often governed by deeply felt animal spirits like desire and fear and hunger. And we also have this apparently more rational side that calculates how we can obtain some long-term advantage. But sometimes those calculations, they're just rationalisations for doing what we wanted to do all along. Now, of course, so much of this can be explained in the field of psychology, but there is another branch of learning that offers explanations based on hard data. And that field is economics. Yes, economics, it's about humans. Dr Andrew Lee is here to tell you how it works, all of it. All of the baffling economist talk we see and hear in the media and from politicians. Andrew is a former professor of economics. He has a PhD in public policy from Harvard University and he's since left academia and in 2010 Andrew was elected to federal parliament and now he's a minister in the Albanese government. And somehow Andrew Lee has managed to become a prolific author as well. And so he's written a short and very entertaining book that encapsulates all of the economic history of the world from ancient times to the modern world we live in today. And he says, the secret of economics is that the most powerful insights come from a handful of big ideas that anyone can follow. Andrew Lee's book is called The Shortest History of Economics. Welcome back to you, Andrew Lee. Thanks, Richard. A uh, lot to get through. We're going to have to be uh, economical with our, uh, our questions and answers today. Indeed. Let's try and squish all of economic human history into this hour that's to come. I think that will be fun. <laughs> Just to begin with, though, what do you say to people who often would, would say that economics is bleak and mean and a bloodless sort of business? Well, economics isn't just about gold prices and exchange rates. It's also about how incentives shape uh, the behaviour of sports people or uh, how people uh, behave in families. Uh, it is the study of humanity, uh, social science, which has proved particularly adept in using large data sets to draw insights, whether that's tax records or Facebook uh, data, uh, and which is uh, increasingly uh, working to provide insights in a whole range of social sciences. I mentioned psychology right at the start. Do economists increasingly talk to psychologists? We certainly do, indeed. We uh, they don't have a Nobel Prize of their own, so we've uh, we've given a, given one of ours to uh, to one of theirs. <laughs> uh, Danny Kahneman winning the Nobel Prize uh, for his critical work in behavioural economics. Uh, psychology has, has provided a whole range of insights, and uh, uh, that's been the behavioural economics toolkit, which really came around, came about about a quarter of a century ago, has now largely been incorporated into how we teach mainstream economics. So, if we wind the clock right back in human history, we begin as as a species, as hunters and gatherers, and then at some point we start to invent agriculture and. The best history we have at the moment, or archaeology we have at the moment, suggests that that was in the Indus Valley in modern-day India. What were some of the economic knock-on effects of people deciding to settle down and till the soil where they lived? Well, some of the things you can do when you have uh, a surplus, when you have additional uh, more food than, uh, than you need immediately, uh, is that you can allow people to specialise more. So in this uh, part of, uh, of what is now modern-day modern uh, uh, India, Kabingan, uh, uh, you see uh, flush toilets, you see uh, bricks built in the same size ratio as today, you see bronze tools used by adults and uh, children's toys. Uh, and then you also see evidence that uh, the Indus Valley civilization traded with others, uh, that they built carts, maybe the first use of wheeled transport in history, uh, and laid out their uh, their cities in a grid pattern. And then they, they brought back uh, raw materials from China, the Himalayas, from Afghanistan, uh, and built up a, a sense of, of shared prosperity. This was a surprisingly egalitarian uh, civilization, Richard, which is possibly why it wasn't discovered until relatively recently. Uh, they didn't build the, the big edifices that characterized the ancient Greeks or ancient Romans, uh, but which for people at the time were often markers of, of great inequality. Uh, the Indus Valley civilization was probably a, a happier civilization for many of its inhabitants than some of the more famous ancient civilizations. So with agriculture, we get all these kind of economic phenomena, like surpluses, for example, where you get mm. trade and we also get specialisation. 
Why was the Eurasian landmass, the big landmass that stretches you know, from Portugal all the way to, to China, why was that better suited to farming than, say, Africa or indeed Australia? Well, there's two answers to that. Uh, part of it is uh, is luck. It just happened to have uh, plant and animal species well suited to domestication, such as barley, wheat, legumes, uh, goats, sheep and cattle. Uh, it's easier to dom- domesticate uh, sheep and cattle than it is African zebras and uh, Australian kangaroos. Uh, but it's also the shape of the continents. Uh, when you're on Eurasia, you're on a continent which uh, spans largely east-west, meaning that as populations grow, you can uh, expand your, your, your population uh, in a similar climatic band. You don't have to learn new tricks to adapt in other areas. And one of the points that uh, Jared Diamond has made uh, is that uh, if you look at the shape of uh, uh, the Americas or of Africa, then in order to expand, you need to move into different climatic zones. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why Eurasia ended up colonising Africa, the Americans and Oceania, <laughs> rather than the other way around. Because they lived on a giant chunk of land that was wider than it was tall by and large. That's one of the main reasons. Precisely. That's extraordinary. Did agriculture indirectly give rise to the first cities? It certainly did. Uh, So once you've got a surplus, you're able to have specialisation that enables building trades. And so you see the building technologies uh, expanding rapidly. Uh, It also uh, gives rise to uh, a stronger political political class, uh, which in some cases extracts resources from society uh, through a repressive army. Uh, And you see this uh, particularly with the Roman Empire, which has uh, uh, 77 emperors in its 500-year history, uh, half of whom were murdered and uh, many more of which died in battle or by suicide. Uh, This is a a fairly uh, brutal civilisation. One of the striking things is that while we talked before about the Indus Valley civilization, which was relatively egalitarian, uh, as uh, populations came into cities, uh, it was sometimes the case that the breadth of their diet decreased. Uh, and some uh, ancient uh, estimate, archaeological estimates suggest that human heights uh, might have actually dropped uh, after the agricultural revolution by about 10 centimetres. So although there were surpluses, the human diet became less diverse, less nutritious. I suppose that's sort of um, shown by the stories of when the first fleet arrived in Sydney Cove, the Eora people were... Uh, the Gadigal people were, by and large, uh, living a more nutritious life. They had more healthy and nutritious constitutions than the people who arrived from Europe. Yes, that's right. And, of course, and if you think about a city like London, which uh, uh, many would have departed from, uh, at that time diseases were rife in cities, uh, whereas in rural areas uh, you tended to, uh, to live, a, live a longer life. I mean, this is regardless of whether you're in a hunter-gatherer state or in a city, uh, an environment in which uh, people live far shorter lives than today, in which uh, uh, many children didn't see their first birthday. Uh, So the uh, rise of cities and the agricultural revolution created the the potential, Richard, for uh, human flourishing, but sometimes that potential was uh, expropriated by the elites. So in cities... You have specialisation, as you say, another economic phenomenon. Not everyone is going out looking for food all the time for the first time in human history. And one of those economic specialisations is accountancy. People are accounting for goods received and sent out and traded. And from there we get written language, pretty much. That's, I think the indications are that the first written languages were, sort of, were tallies written up by, by accountants that then create a broader language that then the literary instinct kicks in and suddenly we get the first stories. What are some of the other technologies we get from these, this very early phase of human-urban life? Well, the only one is money. So uh, money has uh, three qualities. It's a unit of account, uh, it is a, a store of value, uh, and it's a medium of exchange. And, and you saw uh, money emerge in, in ancient Greece around six, uh, 700 to 600 BC, uh, then in the ancient Olympics, they actually gave uh, prizes and uh, of, of money to uh, to those who uh, won races, uh, along with their olive wreaths. Uh, you also saw the uh, the, emer- the emergence uh, 
uh, at, at that at that time of uh, different kinds of money. So there's a, a terrific example from the Yap Islands of Micronesia uh, where they use stone sculptures as money. <laughs> uh, and when ownership changed, they didn't try and move the stone sculpture. Uh, they just uh, uh, the, the society remembered who owned these uh, these large stones. So it was like a house, in other words, that that kind of value. Is, but the houses are kind of well, not a house because you didn't live in it, but it was immovable. And yet it was a form of value, implicit value, that was recognised by everyone else. Yes, that's right. And, and one of the things I love about the, uh, the Abbey's uh, uh, stone sculptures is that now when uh, you buy, when people buy gold from one another, very often the physical gold doesn't move anywhere. It's just a, a rearrangement of items in, a, in an electronic ledger. And I love to think that the Abbey's would appreciate the way in which we handle these transactions. The thing that a gold coin and a giant statue on the island of Yap would have in common that they're pretty, aren't they? Is that the inherent value of money, of a gold coin or of a Yap statue? Well, originally money did have inherent value, made of precious metals, and it's the Chinese in around uh, uh, the year 1000 who were the first to issue paper money. Uh, and paper really is inherently worthless, and so it's a, a promise of value which is recognised by others. Uh, paper, of course, is far easier to carry and so enables commerce, and uh, at various points in its history, China has been uh, a leader in global global commerce. Uh, so it's, it's not surprising that it's the Chinese that uh, uh, invent in invented paper money. But you have to believe the promise is true, don't you? That's right. That's right. We're all uh, uh, in, engaged in uh, in a, uh, uh, a shared understanding that these colourful pieces of uh, plastic that we hand around in Australian society are, are to be given a value. Uh, if you uh, cease believing that, then uh, then you uh, you don't have uh, money, and that means that you fall back on saying, "Well, uh, I've got two apples, and I'd really like to uh, to exchange exchange them for uh, uh, one of your bananas." And uh, if you don't want a banana, and I don't, I don't or if you don't want an apple, and I don't want a banana, then that's probably Problematic trade. Uh, money has that universality that makes commerce uh, so much more straightforward, uh, which means that then uh, countries are able to uh, specialise and people are able to specialise. It's some kind of manifestation of trust. Beautifully put, yes. So, uh, so we're, we've got that uh, bedrock of trust require, which is required uh, and uh, you need uh, governments to, uh, to step in and issue, issue money. Uh, you don't see money emerging very often out of societies uh, without a leadership in place. One of the later Western Rome, well, Roman emperors was Diocletian who was trying to deal with the problem of inflation, which I don't think the Romans really properly understood, like too much money chasing after too few goods. Mm. And to deal with it, he, he instituted this huge scheme of nailing down fixing prices and fixing incomes and also fixing professions as well. We know it didn't work. Why can't it work? Uh, well, ultimately, uh, you need, uh, if you want, want to see growth in a society, you need the opportunities for people to move to the areas where they have greatest skills. And we see societies which lock people into professions that their parents did uh, as uh, particularly static societies that don't tend to, uh, to work terribly well. Uh, it's hard to, uh, to get growth if you're uh, uh, nailing down uh, uh, prices of, uh, of everything. Uh, and what you tend to see instead is shortages. So one of the uh, manifestations of countries which have tried to engage in, uh, in price fixing uh, is you then end up, end up with shortages. You were speaking earlier there about trust, and I'm, I'm really conscious of how important trust is for a functioning economy. And you write that uh, certain community groups in the Middle Ages, like Muslim communities, excelled in trade, Jewish communities and finance, mainly because they were compelled to be in some cases, but that was successful because they were able to extend trust quite widely. How important is this extension of trust to economic development? Well, it's really important. So uh, Islam, the beginning of Islam comes in the year 610 and uh, Muhammad, of course, was a merchant, uh, which meant that trust between Muslims uh, helped to increase commerce in, uh, in Islamic communities. Uh, you also see examples uh, within tight-knit Jewish communities uh, of uh, those engaged in, in money lending um, who, because they trust one another strongly, are able to uh, reduce the transaction costs. Now, uh, if I don't trust you and you don't trust me, we have to write a very complicated contract and think all about the way, the, all the different ways we might diddle one another. Uh, if we trust one another, we can do 
commerce on a handshake. And so, so and sometimes that bedrock of trust uh, is, uh, is encapsulated within religious norms. One of the stories the Vikings told themselves about uh, Ragnarok, you know, the end of the world, the twilight of the gods, was it begins when the gods violate trust. They, they rip off a trader who's built the walls of Asgard. And this, this signifies some kind of awful moral collapse amongst them, which is the thing that brings about the end of the world. That's how serious it gets, Andrew. Yes, absolutely, and uh, and and so uh, having those having those shared norms, as you say, trust is uh, is one of the the bedrocks of economics. And um, Eleanor Ostrom, uh, a political scientist uh, who won the Nobel Prize, uh, she her work is incredibly important uh, in talking about how communities manage to solve collective action problems. Now, this comes uh, out of a, a, an example that's often spoken of, known as the tragedy of the commons. Can you just explain what the tragedy of the commons is, an illustration of, and how it works? Yeah, so the tragedy of the commons is the idea that uh, uh, if we don't price price in uh, the damage that someone someone does to a common pool resource, it'll end up being overused. And, and it's called the tragedy of the commons because of the metaphor of a group of farmers who all have access to a common meadow for their cows to graze on. Uh, it's in each farmer's individual interest to keep on putting animals onto the commons, even though it's not in their collective uh, interest. So you get uh, over uh, overgrazing of the pasture. Since we're in the Middle Ages, we eventually get to the point where the Black Death of the 14th century scourges Europe. It's just, it's a disaster, and through the Eurasian continent, really. And it's not just a humanitarian, a human catastrophe and a political, politically explosive moment. It's also an economic earthquake. What were some of the economic consequences of this sudden onset of mass death from the bubonic plague in the 14th century, Andrew? It is a remarkable uh, thing, as, as you say, Richard. So uh, around a third of Europe's population dies from the Black Death and the population of Europe is, is still lower in 1400 than it was in 1300. Uh, but one of the things you see is that a scarcity of workers then doubles uh, real wages, uh, that is, wages after inflation. Uh, you see land being relatively abundant, so the price of land, which is land rent, goes down. Uh, and you also see a change in the power balance uh, in favour of peasants and against landowners. Power to the people, Andrew. This exactly. Is what, this is what we get from the Black Death, one of the so rare benefits, a, right. <laughs> there's, a, there's a sense in which uh, the plague kills feudalism, uh, that it becomes much harder to, for, uh, for uh, those feudal lords to maintain their power uh, when workers are suddenly more, more expensive. And do we suddenly get all this innovation that comes out of that, since people can now have more, more latitude to go to a job that they might actually be interested in rather than the one that they're stuck in? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I mean, this is largely an agricultural economy, but you see farmers shifting toward, uh, towards different kinds of agriculture, towards land-intensive agriculture. You see workers eating more meat as a result of high, higher incomes. Uh, you see beer going up. Uh, that's one of the markers that economic historians use for prosperity in the era. The age of sail exploration that arises due to improved maritime technology, the better ships that suddenly are, mm. are available, and improvements in geography and cartography. This brings about the age of Europe's age of exploration. And contact with the Americas and contact with sub-Saharan Africa and Europe. What were some of the effects of the trade that suddenly broke out between Europe, sub-Saharan Africa and the Americas? Well, as you say, there's, there's some big technological advances that are ta taking place in the 1400s. You've got uh, the astrolabe, and so sailors can figure out their latitude, better compasses, uh, three-mastered three -mastered ships, uh, and then you have these, uh, these big expeditions. So uh, uh, Christopher Columbus uh, heads out aiming to reach uh, India and China uh, and, uh, and reaches the, uh, uh, the first, uh, first bit of land he reaches. He calls the West Indies because he thinks he's almost to India. Uh, of course, he's not almost to India. He's almost to, uh, to America. Uh, and you see uh, uh, huge, uh, what's called the Columbian Exchange at that, at that point, uh, where you've got corn, potatoes and chilies coming from America, the Americas to Europe, oranges, sugar and pigs going to the Americas. You've tragically also got the uh, exchange of diseases, smallpox, measles, influenza and chickenpox. Uh, and in some places they were, they were killing off four-fifths of the population. 
Uh, and then you've got the rise of the uh, transatlantic slave trade. Uh, more than 12 million people uh, trafficked across the Atlantic Ocean uh, from the 1500s to the uh, to the 1800s. Uh, about 10% of Africa's population trafficked in the 1700s. If we are to look at the slave trade and the use of slaves, a slave-based economy, just sort of dispassionately for a moment. We look at the Roman Empire, which had very widespread slavery. There is an argument, isn't there, that the Romans didn't really progress very far technologically. They came up with the arch, they had uh, good systems of law, uh, fine examples of military technology, but didn't really advance very far at all. And there's an argument that says the reason why is because of slavery. If you've got a slave to do this work, you're not thinking of a labour-saving device. Is a slave-based economy in the long run kind of ruinous for an economy? Well, I think first and foremost, we've got to acknowledge that it is ruinous for the, the enslaved people themselves, but it also does hold back technological progress. Technological progress uh, is in part a function of uh, the price of labour. Uh, if labour is uh, is cheap or, or uh, free, uh, then that can, can hold back uh, innovation. And so you see uh, Roman society producing uh, a whole lot of little uh, toys for the elites, but fewer... Uh, innovations than they might have produced if they'd had to pay fair rates for the labour that was being used. And the streets of Rome filled with unemployed workers too. And and you you know you look at uh, look at Egypt uh, where you've got uh, the pyramids being built by uh, blocks being dragged rather than uh, r- rather than on on wheeled carts. Uh, the slow rollout of water wheels across Europe at the uh, time of feudalism, uh, which accelerates as the uh, the price of labour goes up. Uh, so uh, you know, just as you see more innovation in the typical European restaurant than the typical American restaurant, because wages are higher in Europe than America, so too these uh, these periods where there were large numbers of enslaved people tend to have slower rates of technological progress. Does that speak to the experience of the United States as well, where you had the free labour in the North and the Southern states that went to war with them in the US Civil War, which had very largely slave-based rural agricultural economies. How very different were those economies that developed in the United States in that time? Well, traditionally, the innovation has been more in the north of the United States than the south. And uh, indeed, by the outbreak of the Civil War, uh, there was a massive difference in the industrial bases between the between the two. Uh, there was never really any doubt that the north was going to win. Uh, and that could be put down in, in part to uh, to the fact that the south could uh, rely on this, uh, this uh, large population of uh, un, uh, unpaid workers, uh, which uh, sustained sustained their economy and and meant that they didn't develop as strong a manufacturing sector as they might have done in the absence of slavery. Yeah, you read accounts from people living in the north who came to visit the south during the the antebellum period when slavery was widespread, and they they they're kind of classic North Americans. They're full of vim and vigor. They're energetic. They want to start a business, make some money, and they sort of looked upon their southern cousin, cousins with some disgust for their laziness and their their moral turpitude. There's, uh, there's of course, a, a strong tradition of ri- rivalry mm. north and south of the Mason-Dixon line, uh, but uh, but there's there's something something to be said there if you looked simply at the economics of the north and the south. We're also in a period where there was widespread European colonisation of the rest of the world, and I think at the time it was seen that this was ultimately a huge economic benefit to the country that was doing the colonising. How true is that? Were they able to extract resources to such a degree that it was worth the cost of sending out armies and settlers and uh, infrastructure to the colonies that they were governing. Yes, but they certainly looked to the uh, the cost of colonisation and part of the cost was the, uh, the disease cost. The parts of uh, Africa which tended to be colonised uh, were those which were least malaria prone uh, and that uh, where the the, uh, the colonising force faced a very a very high death rate, they were less likely to colonise, uh, and then you see, for example, less railroads in that, area, in that area. What's the difference between South Africa and Central Africa then? Yes, exactly, yeah, yeah, or indeed uh, uh, between, uh, b- between Australia and uh, uh, parts, uh, parts of Africa. So settler mortality is relatively low in Canada, the US, Chile and, and Australia, uh, and there you get uh, more colonial uh, uh, infrastructure, uh, 
places like Nigeria, Angola and Madagascar, um, you get a, a very extractive form of, uh, of colonialism uh, in which the settlers came in and, and took slaves, took gold, took precious commodities, uh, but didn't leave much infrastructure behind. The first colonising powers were the Spanish and the Portuguese. The Spanish were able to extract vast amounts of silver and gold from their colonies in the Americas. What was the long-term effect of extracting all that gold and silver? It made them temporarily very, very powerful, didn't it? Uh, it did, but uh, it also had this uh, this problem uh, that uh, that it, it dra- dramatically drove up prices back home. Uh, and so you see quite, uh, quite strikingly uh, the, uh, the, the influx of gold and silver on, the, on Spain itself. Uh, Spain in 1500 is one of the world's wealthiest nations. Two centuries later, it's a, it's a backwater uh, as a result in part of the fact that its domestic manufacturers uh, couldn't compete on the world market uh, because the influx of precious metals stolen from Spain's colonies uh, had made their manufactured exports uneconomic. Is this a bit like the resources curse that sometimes afflicts resource-rich countries? It's certainly a parallel to it. And so what we see uh, in developing countries today is that, oddly, some of those with the greatest mineral resources tend to have the slowest rates of growth. Uh, And uh, unlike Australia, which has prospered from our uh, mineral wealth, uh, many countries in uh, the developing world uh, find that uh, despots are better able to expropriate uh, mining wealth. Uh, it's hard if you're a despot to come into a country and steal the uh, the wealth of the manufacturers because uh, that requires cooperation and collaboration with the factories. It's much easier for a despot to come in and, and steal the diamonds because that simply requires taking over a couple of mines. Podcast and broadcast. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. You can find more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. We're sort of up to the Industrial Revolution now, Andrew, where the invention of machines allowed a whole lot of cheap, mass-produced goods. What were some of the knock-on effects economically from the Industrial Revolution that perhaps no one could have ever predicted? Well, the striking thing about the Industrial Revolution, Richard, is the way in which it emerges in this little island off the coast of Europe where people had developed greater urban levels of urbanisation. Britons had a set of legal structures that made it easier to start a business in which agriculture was highly productive. Uh, There's this wave of gadgets that spread over England at that time. The spinning jenny, the iron industry, the puddling puddling process, the steam engine, of course. And these technologies change the economic trajectory of the world. We've been talking about a lot of events up until now, but the striking thing is that the living standards for most people in the world in the 1700s weren't that much better than they'd been on the African savannah. The agricultural revolution had allowed populations to create more people, but those people weren't living higher living standards, weren't enjoying higher living standards. The industrial revolution marks the first time at which suddenly you see a significant change in living standards. Uh, Since then, we've got a doubling of life expectancy at birth. We've seen a 14-fold increase in real incomes globally, and we've seen average heights go up by about 10 centimetres. And we now expect that growth will compound. We expect that our children will live lives of greater prosperity than we do. And that wasn't something that people around the world expected prior to 1700. How does the development of company law affect the rapid development of capitalism in Britain with the East India Company? Well, companies allow uh, people to share resources without the risk that if the enterprise goes wrong, they'll be required to pay out of pocket. The notion of limited liability ensures that people who are starting a company can be taken for the money that they put in, but not for the rest of their assets. That encourages enterprise, encourages risk-taking, uh, and it enables uh, entrepreneurs to work within a, a stable environment to raise capital and to engage in, in risky ventures. So that means like a single wrecked ship is no longer economically ruinous for one person. 
Precisely. And of course, shipping is one of those classic risky ventures in which the returns are potentially high if the uh, voyage goes well, but everything can be lost if the ship is dashed and sent to the bottom of the ocean. The workings of the economy were still quite mysterious to a lot of people up, up until then. Then in 1776, around about the time of the Industrial Revolution, you have the Scotsman, Adam Smith, who publishes his famous work, The Wealth of Nations. And he explains how the mass of people acting in economic self-interest improves the lot of society as a whole. This is the hidden hand of the market. Smith's one of our favourite economists and still uh, still beloved by the profession. He has a metaphor of how specialisation helps people make pins. And observing a pin factory notes that one worker working alone could only probably make a single pin in a day. But a team of 10 people specialising could make nearly 5,000 pins per person per day. He also talks about the uh, way in which economies can provide social benefits, even when people are acting in their self-interest, saying it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own interest. And in this sense, Adam Smith isn't saying you should only act selfishly, but he's saying it turns out that when people pursue their own interests, that that also benefits the collective good. You were speaking there of what he said about one man trying to make a pin by himself as opposed to a thousand people making pins in a pin factory. There's a story you've got of this guy who decided to build a toaster. But to build a toaster from absolute basic first principles, from first materials, this has happened quite recently. Tell me the story of what it meant for this guy to try and make his own toaster from first principles. So Thomas Thwaites was doing an industrial design project and decided it would be interesting to see what it took to make a toaster from scratch, using only his own labour or raw materials he'd personally sourced. Uh, so he chases down iron ore from a disused mine, <laughs> copper from another mine, mica from another mine, tries to smelt them together. He's only able to ultimately do them in a microwave, but finally uh, manages to put together this uh, quirky construction which uh, toasts for a couple of seconds before finally exploding. Uh, he, uh, he estimates that the expenses were about £1,000. I touch base with him on, on my estimates of his labour costs, which I put at £19,000. Thomas came back to me and said, yes, that's right. And curiously, that would mean it cost me £20,000, uh, which is exactly what I sold it to the museum for. Uh, what if you'd bought it at the local store? Well, at the time, uh, his local store was advertising uh, toasters for £4. The, the toaster sort of looks like a melted ice cream with a stick poking out of the side of it, but nonetheless, he did it. I suppose he's made his point there about the benefits of specialisation. That's right. But it took him nine months and £20,000 to make a toaster which could have been purchased for £4 at the local store. Uh, Specialisation is uh, not only good for people, it's also valuable for countries. Uh, and the specialisation of countries in trade leads to the notion of, of comparative advantage, uh, once said to have been the uh, best example in the social sciences of a proposition that's true and, and not trivial. And about the same time of the Industrial Revolution, we have a political revolution going on, which is interrelated with it, of course, so sort of a growing democratic revolution. There's the American Revolution, the French Revolution, and everything that comes out of that, and the slow tendency of the French and British parliaments towards greater democratic participation. Is there a kind of a synergy between democracy and prosperity? More democracy is more likely to mean greater prosperity? Yes, Absolutely. Democratic elections aggregate individual preferences to choose governments. Markets aggregate individual preferences into prices and quantities. There's a synergy between the two. Democracies tend to be richer and, and spend more on health and education. Living standards are higher in market economies than in controlled economies. Maybe it's because democracy protects the bearers of bad news better than autocracies. Yeah, it's a really interesting notion. And, of course, speaking in the, the shadows of the terrible death of Alexei Navalny, it's, you're uh, prompted to think about what it is to be a dictator who is cut off from sources of information. As a parliamentarian, I, I really enjoy getting that uh, that feedback. Uh, someone stopped me on my morning run this morning to, uh, oh, really? to, to provide me some uh, some some fee feedback Very on candid uh, feedback. something that he was working working on. And right. you know, that's a I think that's that's pretty healthy. You know, I like living in a country in which someone reckons they can bail up their local po local politician while the two of them are going for a run in the bush and uh, and share some share some views. There's a couple of wonderful nuggets of info in your book. 
One is on the the invention of the mirror. Like previously, people had been looking at sort of all kinds of distorted reflecting glasses and really couldn't get a very good sense of what they looked like. What effect did the development of the modern mirror, which was a silvered reflective layer under glass, what sort of effect did that have on economic development in the world? Yeah, it's remarkable to think how recent the mirror is. So it's only in 1835 that uh, a German called Justus von Liebig uh, invents the modern mirror. And for the first time, people can accurately see what they look like. But there's, there is also an idea that the mirror creates a more self-centred culture, uh, which in turn helps to fuel modern capitalism, uh, including, perhaps, the sale of more mirrors. With a modern economy, inevitably you get a bit of bit more political philosophy then. And it does raise the question, what's the point of economic management? One of the principles of economics is the notion of utilitarianism, the greatest good for the greatest number. Um, that's a, a notion which is um, uncontroversial if we're thinking about how many people we can fit in lifeboats. If a ship is sinking, we can put more people in the lifeboats. That's unambiguously good. Uh, but in the broad sense, uh, a government which is aimed at maximising shared prosperity is uh, a government which will maximise the well-being of its population. And increasingly, over the uh, as we go now through the, through the 1800s, uh, we see the development of the welfare state, the growth of shared healthcare systems, uh, of support systems for older uh, people in their old age, uh, for supports for people who've lost their jobs, which become important in, in economic slumps. All of these social pillars of the social safety net take time to develop. But one by one, uh, societies put in place more social supports for the most vulnerable uh, and ensure, in one way, Richard, that the ups and downs of luck and weather and misfortune in the economy don't hit people as hard. This utilitarian idea that economics should be about providing the greatest good to the greatest number of people, that exists in a competition, doesn't it? There's a whole other philosophy that says economy should be engineered to reward hard work and persistence and ideas and talents. And the point of economics is to get out of the way of people who are creating wealth like that. That strikes me as a more ideological view than would be held by most economists. I think many economists would see innovation as being partly a product of, of hard work, but partly too a product of luck. Uh, we have the instance of simultaneous invention in which a range of things, including the telephone, uh, are invented simultaneously by different people at, at, the, uh, at the same time. Uh, we also have evidence that uh, quite often uh, innovation isn't just a function of uh, the, uh, the hard work of a lone genius, uh, but also of, of work that's been done by government institutions. So Mariana Matsukatu is uh, an economist who has focused on the important role of government in spurring innovation, uh, pointing out that many of the technologies that power an iPhone uh, were developed by governments, uh, not by uh, Apple and Steve Jobs. The development of trade unions is also another major economic development. Why do you think workers' rights and a Labor Party appear earlier in Australia? Why do we get these workers' institutions and protections before other countries, Andrew? If you go to the late 1800s, Richard, uh, Europe is a place with uh, a lot of people and very little land. Australia, by contrast, is a place with a lot of land and relatively few people. So it turns out that by the late 1800s, uh, the uh, wages in, uh, paid in Sydney are higher than wages anywhere else in the world. Uh, that gives workers a lot of power and allows them to uh, collectively organise. And so uh, some of the Australian unions are among the earliest to demand an eight-hour day, to demand better, better conditions and to demand minimum rates of pay. Uh, indeed, it's uh, it's ironic that the uh, some of the early uh, unionists, the toll puddle martyrs, uh, who uh, uh, tried to uh, to organise together in Britain, uh, were ultimately transported to Australia, uh, because it was Australia which would uh, would then, uh, in decades to come, go on to be uh, one of the world's centres for trade unionism. In the 19th century, we also get the arrival of Marxism and Marxist theory, and as a result of that, uh, uh, we get Bolshevism. We get Leninism, if you like, which and Stalinism that follows from that, which is the total uh, control of the entire economy. And there are a lot of people attracted to that in the early 20th century, the idea of a planned economy. It seemed very rational to a lot of people that instead of just letting the animal spirits of the economy have its way with the world and with the lives of workers, that you would plan everything. But the upshot of it was 
economies in ruin in the Soviet Union and in communist China and in many other countries as well. What are your thoughts on that, Andrew? Yes, it was only through researching this book, Richard, that I came to realise the sheer extent of the drop in living standards that followed the Russian Revolution. Average incomes after the Russian Revolution in 1917 halve, uh, and there's places in Russia where the average caloric intake halves as well. Uh, you've got 13 million premature deaths. Uh, in this turmoil in society, the abolition of private ownership of land, the uh, forbidding of the selling or renting of land, uh, all of that is, uh, is is brutal on the uh, the Soviet people. And that's before you get to the uh, the dark era of Stalin's purges, which uh, claimed the lives of millions more. In the late 90s, early 20th century, there were, it was the era of the robber baron in the United States, where certain industries, particularly the oil industry, had formed a monopoly. Just how bad are those gigantic monopolies for an economy? They're uh, pernicious in this uh, this era. Uh, you see the, uh, the the likes of Cornelius Vanderbilt, John Rockefeller, John D. Rockefeller, and Andrew Carnegie, uh, who uh, basically take advantage uh, of their uh, large power and the lack of regulation. Uh, one example is uh, John D. Rockefeller's Standard Oil Company uh, eliminating almost all its competitors, either by buying them up or squeezing them out, uh, so that by 1880 it controls 90% of the oil refining business. Uh, but it's a while before the law catches up to the uh, the power of the robber barons. Uh, tell me about the creative response to these outrages from a woman named Lizzie McGee, Andrew. Well, Lizzie McGee is wonderful. So she is a uh, passionate believer in the, the ideas of, uh, of Henry George, who's uh, advocating, who's talking about the, uh, the inequality in land ownership. And she develops a board game, which she calls the Landlord's Game. And the idea is it will be an interactive critique of monopoly power. It has streets uh, such, as, uh, such as Wall Street on there, uh, and it's, it's aimed to, to be a radical warning. Uh, Parker Brothers, three decades later, produces a modified version of her, her game, but they strip it of its radical overtones and they mark it to the public as Monopoly. <laughs> uh, and uh, they ultimately, when they're challenged, uh, they only pay her $500, but don't give her the credit for the game. Uh, and, of course, she doesn't get the social justice impact because Monopoly is seen as a, as a celebration of, uh, of Monopoly rather than a critique of it, which, of course, which was how Lizzie McGee regarded yes. it. Yes. So you get from the landlord's game that she invents to the game of Monopoly that seems to encourage people to behave like the monopolist, to behave like the ruthless bastard. It's terrible irony, isn't it? It really is. It's one of my least favourite games. <laughs> uh, there, uh, there, there is a game called Anti-Monopoly, which I'd urge your uh, listeners to, uh, to look up. I have a copy of that uh, si sitting on, my, uh, on the table in my office, uh, which, is, which is only fitting given that one of my ministerial responsibilities is competition. In the late 19th century, we Australian governments introduced tight immigration restrictions. The White Australia policy was established. George Megalogenus argues that this was economically ruinous for Australia. Is that how you see it? Absolutely. Uh, the late 1800s were a period in which Australian living standards were among the highest in the world. And it's not a coincidence that that was a time in which we were relatively open uh, to trade, to migration and to foreign capital. Uh, what we saw after World War I was a, a tightening of all of that. Uh, we imposed an immigration fee in the 1930s equivalent to one quarter of the average annual Australian wage. Uh, and other countries, uh, including uh, Canada and New Zealand, also imposed uh, additional barriers to migration. Uh, the biggest beneficiaries of migrants are the migrants themselves, who in, in some cases can increase their incomes up to sixfold. Uh, but it's also the, the local population. Uh, if immigration is uh, constructed and so that it uh, fills skills shortages, uh, then migrants can create new businesses and fill skills gaps. One of the phenomena that gave rise to Adolf Hitler was, of course, the hyperinflation in Germany that happened after World War I. Far too much money, chasing far too few goods, and that was also a product of them paying back ruinous reparation funds to France and other nations as, as well. What do we know about inflation now and, and how ruinous it can be to an economy? Well, the hyperinflation in Germany is as uh, radical as we've seen. Uh, you, an item that cost one German mark in 1918 cost one trillion marks by 1923. 
Uh, it creates havoc because shoppers want to buy everything on installment. As soon as you get cash, you want to spend it, uh, even if that's on buy buying a third of a product. Uh, it makes it hard for restaurants. They've got to keep on changing their menus. Taxis have to keep on changing and changing their meters. Uh, but it also creates a sense of, of instability. Uh, you have one day in 1923 in Germany where the price of bread is seven times higher at the end of the day than it was in the beginning of the day. And you can't, you can't uh, but help, help but think that uh, that creates a sense of frustration at the government, uh, which may indeed have uh, have created an environment that Hitler stepped into. It destroys uh, savings, doesn't it? It destroys your save the value of all your savings, and no wonder it radicalises people. Uh, absolutely. And in the shortest history of economics, I have a uh, uh, lovely picture from uh, the uh, Weimar Republic of children uh, making huge stacks of worthless banknotes. Uh, this is a uh, an, an example of uh, a country which is uh, in in which the sense of stability that a stable currency provides has gone, uh, and uh, even although by the time Hitler comes to power, uh, in hyperinflation has been banished, it's the memories of that uh, economic mismanagement uh, that are uh, strong in the minds of, Ge of the German people. The baby boomers who grew up in the post-war years grew up in a very different economic environment than the one that people are growing up in now. What was it that made the post-war decades so unique economically? You've got a conflation of a number of factors. Uh, the welfare state, state is growing stronger. Uh, unions are ensuring that pay rises are shared across the factory floor, not just in the corner office. Uh, you have a, a set of social changes that are uh, by the late 1960s, partly as a result of the pill, uh, seeing more women entering the paid workforce. What you see strikingly about this post-war period uh, is that it's a period in which inequality was falling, uh, in which wages were rising faster at the bottom than at the top. Why wasn't that sustainable or why, why wasn't it sustained in the long run? I mean, this sounds like a rising tide that was lifting all boats. There were a number of things that uh, changed in uh, somewhere around 1980. Uh, you saw technological change uh, outpacing education and, and a, a simple model for inequality is that it's a race between technology widening the gap and education narrowing the gap. Uh, you had a range of uh, tax changes which took place at that stage which made the tax scales less progressive. Uh, and you also saw changes that reduced the power of organised labour, uh, particularly under Margaret Thatcher in, the, in Britain uh, and Ronald Reagan in the United States. In some areas, economics was used to explain the incentives behind crime. Tell me about the work of an economist named Gary Becker. Gary Becker is uh, one of the most enjoyable economists of, uh, of this era. Uh, he's somebody who loves telling simple stories to explain complicated ideas. Uh, the story that Gary Becker tells for his entry into the economics of crime uh, was when he realised he was running late for a meeting one day and he could either park legally and be late or park illegally and get to the meeting on time. He calculated the chance of getting caught, <laughs> multiplied it by the fine, and decided that, that that expected cost was smaller than the expected benefit of getting to the meeting on time. Uh, that not only got him to the meeting on time, but led him to produce a seminal article, Crime and Punishment, an Economic Approach. And the insight of that, Richard, is that we shouldn't think of criminals as being stupid. We should think of them as trying to maximise their well-being, just like everyone else. So much of economic thought was based on an assumption that people make rational choices, that people make good calculations of risk and reward and proceed to make economic moves in accordance with that. Are people really that rational when it comes to making economic choices? Not at all. I mean, you're 8,000 <laughs> times more likely to die from a mosquito bite than a shark bite. Uh, you're 4,000 times more likely to die in a car crash than a plane crash. But people worry much more about sharks and planes than mosquitoes and cars. We waste money on slot machines rather than sa uh, saving for retirement. Uh, we can be tricked uh, by uh, restaurants who put an expensive item on the menu and therefore bid up our, our notion as to what is a reasonable price to pay for a meal. Uh, we can get tricked uh, through, uh, through uh, time-limited lightning deals from online retailers. Uh, and as uh, Jerry Seinfeld once put it, uh, we stay up late because uh, getting only five hours of sleep isn't a problem for night guy, it's a problem for morning guy. <laughs> the biggest economic fact in the last 30 years is the sudden rise of China economically, the huge growth in its economy. 
How much has China's rise thwarted a lot of conventional economic thinking about what it takes to make a poor country rich? Well, in some sense, it's uh, adhered to, uh, to, to straightforward economic principles. So in 1978, uh, the emergence of uh, private property really transforms China's economic development. Uh, and much credit must be given to Deng Xiaoping for allowing those initial experiments to spread across the population. Uh, the benefits of uh, trade are, are clear for China as they are for, uh, for other countries. Uh, much of the prosperity, uh, the hundreds of millions of Chinese who would otherwise have gone to bed hungry uh, and now have enough to eat, uh, owes itself to uh, the way in which China has able to, been able to find a niche in the global economy uh, and to export products that it is eff effective at doing. Uh, but there's also been a theory that uh, rising prosperity would ultimately lead to democratisation, and we haven't seen a great deal of that in China. One of the things that could always get gales of laughter from the 1980s onwards was any suggestion that a government should be in the business of, of picking winners. That was always going to be disastrous because governments don't have as good as information as people do on the ground who are actually at the coalface of whatever industry they're involved in. And yet China is about to overtake the United States as a generator of electric vehicles, for example. China has been picking winners, hasn't it? And very successfully, it would seem. It's been successful in a range of different areas. And this is a theory which one of China's most prominent economists, Justin Yifu Lin, has been uh, propounding. Uh, he has this notion that low-income countries uh, do best not only when they have a market orientation, but also when they're guided by a proactive state. Uh, he talks about the importance of special economic zones, about investing in infrastructure, uh, and about identifying sources of foreign investment. Just finally, Andrew, economics can create magic sometimes. I'd love you to tell me the story you have in your book of how a Canadian blogger managed to magically transform a paperclip into a house. So in 2005, Canadian blogger Kyle MacDonald decided that he would try and see how far he could go with trading, starting with a red paperclip. He traded his paperclip for a pen. He traded the pen for a hand-sculpted doorknob. He traded the doorknob for a camp stove. <laughs> 14 trades later, he had a movie roll, and he was able to swap that movie roll for a small house. You mean like a role in a movie, are you saying? Is that what you Precisely. mean? Precisely. Right. So uh, somebody had told him he could play a role in a movie. Uh, it was a, uh, a sought-after movie role, uh, and he was able to, uh, to switch, uh, switch it for a house. So he goes from uh, paperclip to house in 14 trades. I find this fascinating, Richard, not only because uh, Kyle MacDonald is clearly better off at the end of the end of the situation, but the people he's traded with are also better off. And that's one of the great insights of economics, uh, that the gains from trade flow both ways. Uh, when you buy a coffee, uh, you're getting a coffee for, for less than you would have been willing to pay, uh, and the seller is receiving uh, more, more money than the coffee costs them to produce. You're both better off when you walk out of the cafe. Andrew, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for this brilliant whistle-stop tour through the history of world economics. Thank you so much. Thank you, Richard. It's been a treat. You've been listening to a podcast of Conversations with Richard Feidler. For more Conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations.